0: Greetings and welcome back to The Kogo Pod. I'm Daniel Lazar. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm calling today's talk, Corruption and Lawlessness in Nigeria's Unstable Democracy. And in this talk, I hope to walk you through some specific cases of corruption in Nigeria as a means to try to give you a sense for the degree to which corruption undermines trust and thus undermines democracy in Nigeria. It's hard to know where to begin when talking about corruption in Nigeria because corruption in Nigeria is so endemic. Nigerians can't go a day without interfacing with rampant corruption, whether it's bribes that they have to pay in order to get power, Or bribes that have to be paid to get business licenses, bribes that they have to pay to get kids into preferred schools and universities, bribes that they have to pay the police so they can go on with their day, or examples of conspicuous corruption among politicians or business people that they read about in the news or hear about on the streets. Corruption, bribery, dishonesty, It's rampant in Nigeria. Corruption touches everything in Nigeria. Corruption erodes everything in Nigeria. And for that reason, it's hard to know where to start. So I want to start here. Nigeria is born of corruption. Yeah, the colony of Nigeria was born in 1914, after a century of British mismanagement, exploitation, and murder. The country itself is born of a corrupt conspiracy. And every Nigerian is painfully aware of this. The entire colonial project was riddled with corruption. And so the genesis story of Nigeria is, quite sadly, quite tragically indeed, the story of corruption. But despite this corruption, perhaps because of it, modern Nigeria was born in 1960. Yeah. And since 1960, Nigeria has careened from crisis to crisis. And among those crises are ethno religious schisms, which serve to, among other things, undermine trust. Nigerians of different tribes, different sects, different regions, they don't trust each other based on ethno-religious divisions, some of which were created by the British, some of which were exacerbated by the British, some of which have existed for time immemorial. But to understand corruption in Nigeria, we have to grapple with the painful reality that many Nigerians are willing to engage in acts of dishonesty, acts of corruption, acts of exploitation, because they feel like they're exploiting the other. It's an Igbo who is exploiting an Igbo, or a Yoruba who's exploiting a Hausa, right? Lacking a common national vocabulary, at least on some level, corruption is in some way augmented by the ethno-religious divisions that undermine unity in the country. And so you have a political culture built on mutual suspicion and othering. And these mutual suspicions beget a culture of fear and antagonism. And that mutual antagonism begets opportunism the opportunity to get rich, the opportunity to engage in a corrupt action which results in the exploitation of the other and which ultimately manifests in the betterment of the person who committed the corrupt act. And this opportunism on some level is understandable because of the culture of endemic poverty in Nigeria. So before you, my dear listener, get up on your high horse as you're listening to this talk and say to yourself that you, you would not engage in these acts of corruption. You wouldn't do things like this. It's not like you. I urge you to walk a mile in the other person's shoes here and recall at the very least that half of Nigerians live in poverty. And if you were poor, chronically poor, chronically poor without a realistic hope of getting out of poverty, perhaps you too would engage in corrupt activities as a means to better your life and to better the life of your children and your children's children. So I urge you to be empathic and consider the stakes at hand here, right? Nigerian poverty is tragic, and it is tragic in particular because Nigeria is a rich country. And it is rich, or it should be rich, because of oil. And so we have this political culture in Nigeria where the oil wealth gets siphoned off by the elites, and the average Nigerian doesn't get to enjoy the fruits of Nigerian oil wealth. And every Nigerian knows this. They know that they're sitting on a huge pot of expensive oil. They see the fancy cars driving down the street. They're aware that politicians and leaders in business are sucking the well dry. And these are their leaders. And when the leaders set models like this, and when the leaders act with impunity, it trickles down. Right? Now, I'm going to give a whole other talk about oil wealth and oil corruption in Nigeria. So let's sort of like put a thumb on that for later. But for now, let's look at the facts, right? According to Transparency International, Nigeria is in the bottom quintile, right? They are among the most corrupt countries in the world. Their score is 25 out of 100 on the Transparency International scale. Out of 179 countries that Transparency International studies, Nigeria ranks 149 out of 179, like among the most corrupt countries in the world. And it's this corruption that's undermining faith in institutions. In 2000, 84% of Nigerians reported satisfaction with their new democracy. Today, less than 20% of Nigerians are satisfied with their democracy, according to Afrobarometer. And nowhere, is Nigeria's democracy in deeper trouble than at state and local levels, where bruising contests for power take place in a bloody, heinous, winner-take-all system. A Nigerian National Assembly member called Sola Ariyeye says, and I'm quoting here, greedy politicians are literally killing their own people by stealing the money for health care. For schools, for clean water, for everything that the state should provide its people. By the way, that talk, like the talk of elite politicians, members of the National Assembly, talking about murderous corruption, is the norm. It's undeniable, it's ubiquitous. And perhaps what Ariyeye is referring to is that the governors get their monthly cut of the so called national cake. Like the money that comes from the oil, and they have almost no one to answer to for how they spend that money. A lot of governors just steal with impunity and they get away with it because they buy the loyalty of the legislatures and they buy the loyalty of the courts. And they're able to do that because they've built these robust patron client networks where they are the patron of patrons. They are the ogre of ogas. They are the bosses and they buy elections and they steal from the people. In 2006-2007, 30 out of the 36 governors of Nigeria were under federal investigation for corruption, and six of them were removed from office because of corruption, right? So one in six governors were removed just in that period alone. And part of this is a problem of federalism, right? Right? Like Nigeria's federal character allows for so much independence at the state and local levels. And of course, the ethno religious diversity of Nigeria basically demands a federal arrangement. So, the solution, in a way, to the ethno religious problem becomes a problem when it comes to combating corruption because the decentralized nature of the Nigerian system makes it hard to monitor what governors and state legislatures are doing. So I wanted to tell you one such story of state and local conspicuous corruption in Nigeria. We're going to call this the puzzling case of Akiti. Akiti is a Yoruba-majority state in southwest Nigeria, and in order to keep your ears on the story, you have to remember two names, Fayosi and Fayemi, okay? Ayo Fayosi was the incumbent governor of Akiti, and Dr. Coyote Feemi, Dr. Fayemi, is the challenger, right? So Fayosi was one of those governors who got removed from office because of a federal investigation, he was accused of diverting $100,000 to a U.S. account, and he was not formally, but suspected, of ordering dozens of murders. Because Fayosi ran a Kiti state like some kind of mobster, when the 2000 elections were up, he was challenged by an outsider called Dr. Coyote Fiammi. Fiammi got his doctorate in war studies from King College London, He was a director of the Center for Democracy and Development. He was a fellow at the Center for Peace and Conflict Studies, an OECD consultant, like a real stand-up guy, internationally recognized as a thinker and a public servant, and a public intellectual, really. And he didn't like what was happening in Akiti, so he ran to oppose Ayo Faiosi. And for taking that stand, for doing his part to remove from office a corrupt gangster. He came home one day and there was a note on his fridge, which said, and I quote, since you continue to oppose Governor Fayosi, we shall kill you. And the note was signed, the Fayosi M-Squad. And Fayemi tries to brush off this threat, thinking maybe it was just like some like you know, local or neighborhood hoodlums. But a couple of weeks later, another candidate for governor, this guy was a World Bank consultant. He was bludgeoned to death in his bed in front of his wife. And Femi's response to that, and I quote, This is democracy at work in Nigeria. Murder and money. Violence and fraud. Money is the language of Nigerian politics. And as much as you want to get away from that, you also have to be mindful of those short-term things that you gotta do. And what Fami felt that he had to do was to get involved in politics. He continued to oppose Feosi. He became the governor of Akiti. But the most twisted thing about it is in 2014, Fayosi opposed him in an election and won. A guy who was so nationally renowned for being a corrupt fraudster, he won. And he mismanaged Akiti state for his term. And in 2018, Fayemi retook the governorship from him. And to this day, Fayosi stands accused of massive money laundering. In fact, just this past December, his trial got pushed back yet again. This is a trial that he faces for laundering 4.4 billion naira. And the reason the trial got extended is because one of the key witnesses went missing. So this is the type of corruption that undermines public trust in Nigeria. It undermines democracy. And while there are plenty of talented and indeed brilliant people involved in Nigerian politics, we have to accept that a lot of talented people stay as far away from politics as they can because they see Nigerian politics as nothing more than gangsterism, to which there's much truth. When the leaders conspicuously misuse their power, it makes it really hard to recruit the best and brightest into politics. And that's a lesson that transcends Nigerian politics. And these transgressions of morality undermine stability in Nigeria despite robust institutions designed to reduce corruption, one of which is the Economic and Financial Crimes Commission, or the EFCC. The EFCC was established in 2003 to combat corruption, to combat fraud and money laundering and other economic crimes. Its mission, and I'm quoting from its website, is to rid Nigeria of economic and financial crimes and to effectively coordinate the domestic effort of the global fight against money laundering and terrorist financing. So not only does the EFCC fight against political money laundering and the like, it also seeks to combat internet fraud and so-called 419 scams. You probably know 419 scams. You know, you get an email out of nowhere from a Nigerian prince who's, you know, stuck in London and just needs 700 pounds, and he'll pay you back two times that when he gets back to Nigeria. Those are called 419 scams, labeled such because they are section code 419 of the Nigerian legal code. So you have these institutions like the EFCC, but then those institutions get misused by people in power. For instance... President Obasanjo used the EFCC to divide and conquer his own enemies. And later heads of state have sought to do the same. And this is an illustration of the limits of institutions and the need for ethical leaders of those institutions. So let's take a dive into what this looks like, right? So you have the EFCC, and then you have the INEC. And the INEC is the Independent National Electoral Commission. The INEC was established in 1999 with the return to civilian rule and the penning of the new constitution. And its goal is to safeguard elections and thus to safeguard the constitution. Right, so the INEC combats ballot stuffing, voter intimidation, ballot fraud, you know, the creation of phantom voting booths, stuff like that. So the executive branch staffs and monitors the INEC. And the executive branch in Nigeria uses the INEC for its own political purposes. Even though Boston Joe's ally, Jimmy Carter, the former American president, couldn't endorse either of his victories in 1999 or 2003, the chairman of the INEC, from 2005 to 2010, a gentleman called Maurice Iwu, He claimed, as the chairman of the INEC, that the INEC was being guided by the president and the People's Democratic Party. And then for saying that, for suggesting that the INEC was being misused by the executive branch, he himself was charged with corruption by the EFCC. And he was removed from office by the PDP president, Good Luck Jonathan, five years into his term. And where the EFCC and the INEC come together is in this sort of like interesting nexus where those facing charges of corruption are barred from running for office. So section 137 of the INEC states, and I quote, a person shall not be qualified for election to the office of the president if he's been indicted for embezzlement or fraud by a judicial commission of inquiry or an administrative panel of inquiry. So you can't run for office if you're facing a charge by the EFCC. So what the executive branch does is it uses its allies in the EFCC to launch an indictment against you. They keep that indictment in the air until the election's over. You can't run for that election. And then when that election's over, usually they'll just drop the charge. Sometimes they'll continue to make your life miserable your legal fees stack up. You have to wake up and think about it every day. It's a nightmare. And this happens at the highest levels. So much like Vladimir Putin, in 2006, Obasanjo put in a bid for a third term. He wanted to have the constitution amended so that he could run for a third term. And his vice president, his very own vice president, Atiku Abu Bakr, asked the Senate to investigate Obasanjo for 127 impeachable offenses, saying he was using phony accounts, that he was embezzling money, and that he was siphoning money off of the oil revenues. So this is a political drama at the highest level. The president of Nigeria is seeking an extra-legal third term. Frustrated by this, in part because his own political ambitions were being undermined. Abu Bakr, the vice president, was hoping to step into the presidency after Obasanjo left office after two terms, as he's legally obliged to do. And so Obasanjo unleashed the EFCC on Abu Bakr. Yeah. Then Abu Bakr's supporters start lobbying death threats at EFCC officials. The secretary of the Action Congress Party, Alhaji Le Mohammed, said, "And I quote: The onslaught by the federal government is not just against Atiku, or the Action Congress, but against all Nigerians. As the ultimate goal of this PDP administration is either stalemated elections or no election at all, they know what the INEC and the EFCC has done is illegal." They know we will change the action in court, and that indeed we are willing to go all the way to the Supreme Court. But here's the end game for these enemies of democracy and purveyors of anarchy. When the court finally rules, then they'll plead that there's no time to print 40 million ballot papers. And Muhammad was right. Just days before the 2007 election, Abu Bakr was cleared by the Supreme Court and allowed to run, but his name wasn't on most of the ballots. Having gained only 7% of the vote, he came in third, losing to Yaraduwa. So here are two institutions born to combat corruption, right, the INEC and the EFCC, and they become tools for corrupt leaders to terrorize and punish their opponents, And another institution which was meant to protect Nigerian people against crime and corruption was the SARS unit, the special anti-robbery squad, which was established in the early 90s to protect Nigerian people. But the problem in Nigeria is despite the national cake, police and military officers are underpaid, sometimes they're not paid at all. So in order to just make a living, to support their families, the SARS squad has taken to setting up illegal roadblocks where drivers are forced to pay them bribes in order to move on. They perpetrate searches without warrants, and then they'll plant drugs or they'll plant a gun, and then they'll demand a bribe in exchange for that person's freedom. They arrest and detain people without warrants. You know, they'll just like see... A Nigerian kid on the street who's using an iPhone, right? The prized iPhone. If you have an iPhone, you must have money. So they'll just walk up to that kid and they'll demand money with the assumption that if you have an iPhone, you can afford to pay a bribe. Yeah. If you drive a nice car in Nigeria, just expect that you're going to pay a bribe. And Nigeria is a driving culture, right? You got cheap oil. A lot of people have cars because you're paying next to nothing for oil, which is problematic in all sorts of ways. But the reason I bring it up is... People in their cars, they're stuck in like a Lagos traffic jam, and the police are just walking between the cars, demanding bribes. This is what the SARS squad does. And, you know, trigger warning, but it can't go without being said. The SARS squad is also accused of committing hundreds, if not thousands of rapes. And for the last couple of years, since 2017, Nigerian activists, a lot of them, though not all of them young, Nigerian celebrities, they've taken to the streets in peaceful protest, protesting the SARS squad. And they've created all of these trending videos with the hashtag NSARS, and it's garnered some international attention. You know, Amnesty International documented 82 cases of abuses and extrajudicial killings in just a three-year period. The New York Times was reporting. And again, these are the police. They are there to protect and serve. And the Nigerian people need protection from them. And it became such an international affair. And it became so... Clearly shameful that in October of 2020, the Nigerian government announced that it was defunding SARS. And a lot of Nigerians are celebrating that. And let us hope that what replaces SARS is less corrupt. Let's hope that it actually protects the Nigerian people instead of terrorizing them. But in as much as I want to be hopeful, unless the conditions that created SARS are ameliorated, it's hard to imagine the next special police unit being any less corrupt. So as someone who cares a lot about Nigeria, as someone who has Nigerian friends, as someone who has cultivated an affection for the Nigerian nation state, for the Nigerian people, it pains me to report to you that Nigerian people are routinely, probably daily, victims of corruption. They are also routinely perpetrators of corrupt acts. And the very institutions that have been constructed to combat corruption are themselves some of the most corrupt institutions in Nigeria. And it makes it ever more difficult to be hopeful for democracy in Nigeria when the institutions that are there to protect the people systematically and routinely harm the people, thereby further eroding public trust and public faith in democracy. And it is the primary point on every political platform, right, to combat corruption. And every Nigerian politician has become expert at paying lip service to combating corruption, Yet corruption in Nigeria continues to get worse. Faith in democracy continues to deteriorate. So much so that the Nigerian people have elected a former military dictator to take the office of the presidency, Mohamedou Buhari, a wolf in sheep's clothing. So civilian rule in Nigeria has been thoroughly hijacked by corruption. And I leave it to you to carefully consider how, given the endemic poverty, given the ethno-religious cleavages, given the political culture and history of corruption, and given oil politics, how Nigeria can pivot from being one of the most corrupt countries in the world to being, let's say, less corrupt. What types of institutions and policies and civil society organizations can come together in a full-throated effort to combat corruption? It's worth thinking about, and I hope you make some time to think about it. I also hope that as dark as it may have been, you found some interest in this talk, and I look forward to the opportunity to share ideas with you again. Until then, stay healthy, stay well.